Good morning. This is Pastor Mike Letterman with Christ-Lives.org. Today we continue our series of lessons in the final countdown. Our lesson today is entitled, After the Storm. You know, we pick up our study again in Revelation chapter 14 today. If you've been studying along with us as we've moved through this amazing book, you know that the last two chapters that we have discussed have been very dark, depressing, and discouraging. We've been talking about the devil, the antichrist, and the false prophet. We have witnessed the depths of depravity as man abandons his creator to worship the devil through his false Christ. Now the scene here begins to change. Chapter 14 is like a glorious rainbow after a fierce storm. I still remember in Lenore City, Tennessee, where, where I was born, um, I lived on top of a ridge overlooking Fort Loudon Lake, a small house, the first house I ever owned. Tornadoes, three of them, went right straight over the top of our house. And I remember sitting in that house and listening to the sound of that tornado as it ripped right across the top of us, but never sat down on our home. Ripped right across the top of us, and hit a couple of houses down to the foot of the, the ridge and walked across the river and hit some houses on the other side and then hit downtown Lenore City. I'll never forget the aftermath after that storm as I went outside and the sky was had a brilliant hue to it. It was in the afternoon about six o'clock and the air was so clean as if this, this giant tornado when it went through had literally sucked all of the, the, the bad things in the air along with it and taking them out. So after that fierce storm, we had glorious peace and fresh air. You know, God gives us a breath of heavenly air with these verses as we, God takes a brush of his grace and then repaints the landscape of the revelation. See, only God can do that. Only God can take those things that are really horrible beyond words and turn it into a thing of glory. And that's just what he does in these verses. You see, in chapter 14, we're allowed to get a little glimpse of heavenly glory. We're allowed to see the Lamb of God. He is still the theme of this book, and he is center stage in these verses. It would be a blessing if we could figure out how to keep Jesus at the center of everything we do in our lives as individuals and in the life of the church. You know, in these verses, we meet again the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are selected and sealed in chapter 7. So, these men have preached the gospel of the kingdom during the darkest days of the tribulation. They were persecuted by the Antichrist, but God preserved them. And at some point during the tribulation, when they have served their purpose, God will allow the 144,000 to be killed by the Antichrist. These men will then join their Redeemer, the Lamb of God, in His glory in heaven. Now that's the scene we're going to investigate today. These men have weathered a terrible storm here on the earth. And now for them at last, the storm is over. And they are home with the Lamb. I want to show you the facts that are revealed in these verses concerning the 144,000. And I want to preach on the thought 
after the storm. Let's read from the Word of God. Revelation chapter 14, starting with verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sinai, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty-four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Let's take a look at this 144,000. First point I want to make is that they are a rescued army. You know, they are protected by God. You see, when we first met this group of men, it was in Revelation chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. There in the Bible it says, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And they were sealed a hundred and forty-four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And then it goes into details to how many were sealed from each tribe. You see, these men have been sealed by God, and they've been protected by Him through the darkest days of the tribulation. Now, hundreds of millions, perhaps even billions of people have to die. But these men have been protected through it all because they have been sealed by God. The earth will be stained red with the blood of holy martyrs, but these men will be protected through it all. Satan will hunt them and harass them, but he will be powerless to kill them because they have been sealed by God. They have his name in their foreheads, and they are untouchable. Satan marked his people, and they are headed to hell. God sealed his servants, and they are bound for glory. Remember their last sermon from last week? Satan marks, God seals. I want you to remember that. Satan marks, God seals. That's because that's all Satan can do. Again, reminding you that Satan marks his people. Look in Revelation chapter 13, verse 16. In the tribulation, he will mark them with the mark of the beast. Today, he touches their bodies. He marks their bodies their hearts, and their minds with the scars of their sins. Satan marks all those who follow him. God, on the other hand, will seal his people. He places his seal upon them and labels them as his own possession. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. These are all examples of him labeling them as his own possession. The Spirit of God took up residence in our hearts and he sealed himself in and he sealed Satan out. These men are preserved by God. You see, when these men arrive on Mount Zion, there are just as many there as they were that were sealed back in chapter 7. Look at that. I want you to look at that. 
There are just as many here on Mount Zion as there were when they were sealed back in chapter 7. God sealed 144,000. And now, how many stand before the Lamb in glory? 144,000. There's not 143,999. There's not 142,520. There are 144,000. He brought just as in just as many as he called out. You know, the same is true for all of God's saints. According to his word, we have been sealed unto the day of redemption. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. We're also told that Jesus will not lose a single one of us that have been given to him by his Father. Look at John chapter 6 verses 37 through 40. Those who are saved are as sure for heaven as if they were already there. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 through 30. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6. Jesus, Jesus gives eternal life and eternal security to every single person who trusts him for their salvation. You see, there's a very important thing to remember here. When the roll is called in glory, not a single person will be missing. When the family gathers for the marriage supper of the Lamb, there will not be an empty seat at the table. God will bring all his children home. You see, these men, this 144,000, are presented to God. We're told these men meet the Lamb on Mount Zion. Now, this Mount Zion is an ancient name for the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you'd like to research that, you can find it in 2 Samuel 5.7, also in Psalm 48.2. Jerusalem is referred to as Mount Zion at least 21 times in the Word of God. Some commentators believe that John here is referring to the earthly city of Jerusalem. They think they were seeing a vision of the, of the coming millennium when Jesus will rule on the earth for a thousand years. I just kind of believe that what we're seeing is a heavenly scene. These men have served their time. They have fulfilled their mission here on earth and they have been brought in the presence of the Almighty. Verse 3 talks about heavenly singing. Verse 5 shows them standing before the throne of God in glory. These men have been rescued out of a world gone mad, and they are home in the presence of the Father and the Lamb of God. You know, I praise the Lord that there's a better place waiting on the people of God. If this world was heaven, as some groups claim, I wouldn't want it. No, there's a better place waiting on the children of God when we leave this world. Jesus told a little bit about it in John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3. John told us a lot about it in Revelation 21 through 22. My mind has tried to think about that place, but one day my eyes will see its glory, not the eyes that I have in my earthly body, but the forever incorruptible eyes that will be given with my new body. Because it will take those incorruptible eyes to be able to truly see the glory that God has set for us in heaven. These feet will walk its endless streets. These ears will sing and hear the sweet sounds of Zion, and they will hear the sweetest sound to ever fall upon them. They will hear the Savior say, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Praise God. Because one day 
we're all going home. You know, this 144,000 were a rescued army. They're also a rejoicing army. We see a new setting here. These men have been rescued from the terrors of the tribulation. They have witnessed death and destruction on a very unprecedented level. They watch the world turn its back on God and embrace the devil as their new God. They have seen this world fall at the feet of the Antichrist and worship him as God. They watch them embrace the devil as their new God. They've seen this world fall. They have seen more horrible things than anything you and I could ever imagine. I have seen some very horrible things in my young life. But it will be nothing compared to what takes place at this time. This verse finds them home in heaven in the presence of the Lord Jesus. They are finally home. And heaven is filled with the sounds of their worship and their praises. Heaven is filled with joy because of the presence of the Lamb. What a contrast there is between the world that we live in today and heaven. This world is a world that's filled with pain and sorrow and tears. None of those things will be allowed over there. Look at Revelation chapter 21 verse 4. This world is marred by disease and death. They won't be found over there. This world is in the grip of sin and Satan. Both will be banned in heaven. Revelation chapter 21 verse 28. This world is perishing. That world will endure for all eternity. You know, they're rejoicing in heaven today. We'll join them one day soon. One day, we'll take our last steps in this wicked, harsh, and cruel world in which we live. We will live here. We will leave here. And we will fly away to be with the one who died for us on Calvary's cross. We will see the one who loved us in spite of our sins. We will see Jesus and then we will see heaven. We're headed to a city and one day we will be home. The 144,000 sing a new song. They are overcome with joy because they are in the presence of God and the Lamb. They are overwhelmed and they burst into song. They sing a song that's unique to them. It's a new song and no one is qualified to sing it but them. The word learn means to understand. No one can understand their song because no one has had their experiences. A new song is mentioned some seven times in the Old Testament. It's always used as a means to praise the Lord for some great, amazing thing He has done. Look at Psalm 98, uh, chapter 98, verse 1 as an example. You know, there was a day when the Lord saved my soul. And when He did, He placed a new song within my heart. The only songs my soul knew then were the songs of the world. All my soul knew were the dirges of a life of sin and sorrow. But when he saved me, he gave me a brand new song. And if you're saved, you know what I'm talking about. I went down that day singing the song of the broken-hearted lost sinner. I came up singing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. 
Since that glorious day, God has been adding verses to my song of praise. That day I knew that he had saved me and what he was all about. The day that I gave my life over to him to preach his word this late in my life, I knew, I knew, I knew that although I was saved, I was not living for him. Oh, in many aspects, I'm sure that I was. But I was not proclaiming his word as he had already called me three times in my life to do what I'm doing right now. And I kept asking, give me 10 more years. Give me 15 more years. Well, guess what? You take up so many years and all of a sudden you look back and you wonder where time has gone. So as I saw my wife laying there on life support the night after she fell, and I got down on my knees and I asked God to take my life instead of hers and let her live. I didn't know that he would answer my prayer the way he, that he did. So he let her live. And he blessed her. And she recovered. But he also impressed on me that he had taken my life to use for his and for his glory. And so that's exactly what I'm trying to do today. You see, God saved me. And now I can sing of his faithfulness, his blessings, his glory, his goodness, his grace, his presence, and all his provisions. I can sing because he has changed my life and given me a new song. He's given me a song that is as unique as I am. If you're saved, he's done the same for you. I can't put every word of my song into voice verse down here, but when I get home to glory, I will sing the new, new song with glory in my soul. I will have the vocabulary and the means with which to praise him in glory. I may not be able to sing the whole song now, but I do want to lift up my voice and share the parts I can put into words. I want to praise him for saving my soul and saving the, the life of my wife. He is worthy of our love and praise. Let's look at the, the still continue to look at the 144,000 because they are a redeemed army. You see, these 144,000 are part of a special group of people. They represent the most choice of God's servants down through the ages. There have been many men and women who have made their mark for Jesus, but these men stand a little taller than the rest. You see, two verses really describe these men. What the Bible says about them should be true of every saint of God. These men have not even been saved yet, but their dedication to the Lord Jesus already serves as a model for every believer. You see, they are spotless. We're told that these men have maintained their physical purity, did not fall in prey to the sins of the flesh that will mark the last days. Beyond that, they have not succumbed to the spiritual fornication that will run rampant in the world during the tribulation days. The world will go after the great whore, Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. Revelation 17, verse 1. But these men will stand separated and holy during apostate age. God expects the same from his children in all ages. His command is for us to stay separate from this wicked world. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. We are to hate even the garment spotted by the flesh. Jude 23. They are surrendered. These 144,000 preachers had followed the Lord Jesus wherever he had them. They did not turn back through fear. They didn't turn away from their task 
even though it was dangerous and costly, they stayed the course. They followed the Lamb. And the word follow here means to be in the same way as. These men walked in the ways of the Lord. They made His way their way. And they stayed the course for the glory of God. Again, this is just what God expects from each one of us. He saved us to walk in His will and to follow His ways. He wants us to be obedient, surrendered followers. He wants us to make His way our way. Of course, this means that we have to see things the way He sees them and do things the way He does them. Look at Amos chapter 3, verse 3. The Lord wants us to follow Him wherever He leads us with no regrets, no refusals, and no reservation. How well I know. He's looking for obedient servants. You know, Willie Borden was born into wealth as an heir to the Borden Dairy Fortune. But he soon recognized that true wealth was to be found in a different type of inheritance, being a child of God and an heir with Christ. Borden lived a short but high-impact life. He graduated high school at age 16 and quickly decided to become a missionary after seeing the global need for Christ on a trip through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. He memorialized this decision by writing No Reserves in the back of his Bible. After revolutionizing the campus of Yale University by starting a weekly prayer and Bible study group that was attended by three-fourths of the student body at the time, Borden could have started his career with any corporation that he wanted. Rather, he stood firm in his decision to become a missionary and enrolled at Princeton Seminary. Once again, he made a record of his decision in the back of his Bible. No retreats was his entry. After finishing Princeton Seminary, Borden studied Arabic in Egypt to reach Muslims in China. He died from spinal meningitis shortly thereafter. You know, he never reached his intended mission field, but he impacted so many people during his life. The last entry in the back of his Bible was, No regrets. No regrets, no refusals, no reservation. That God wants all of his children to live lives of great impact. And he gave us the example of Willie Borden as an inspiration. But no reserves, sacrifice yourself. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Offer your entire being, body, mind, and soul to God as a living sacrifice. Allow Him to use you as He desires and discover His perfect will for your life. No retreats. Press on. Look at Philemon chapter 3, verse 14. After totally surrendering to God, you will face distraction and discouragement that will make you want to revoke your sacrifice, and not follow God's will. Stay focused on God and rely on His resurrection power to reach forward for what lies ahead. Some of the darkest problems that you can imagine will follow you after you become a child of God. After you decide to move in God's Word, perhaps you decide to become a minister, there will be obstacles that will be thrown in your path to dissuade you from taking that step in your life. Satan does not want you to be used as a tool for God. But stay focused on God and rely on that resurrection power so you can reach forward for that which lies ahead. And no regrets. 
finish the course. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Offering yourself unreservedly and unrelentingly requires great faith. But God honors your faith, and he will help you fight the good fight so that you can live without regrets and hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, when I decided to take this road in my life to become a minister, I gained some friends, also lost some friends. People didn't want to believe that Mike Letterman would preach the gospel. They thought it was something fake, something new that I'd just come up with. They didn't believe that God called me there on that cold hospital floor to preach his word and to be an evangelist. But yet, nonetheless, that's what I'm doing right now because it's what God wants me to do. And as long as I have breath in my body, I am going to continue to do this. If you look at the 144,000, they're symbolic. See, these, these men were chosen, saved, and sealed at the beginning of the tribulation. They went out and they preached the gospel to the ends of the earth. Just as the first sheaves of grain were taken into the temple and way before the Lord is a symbol of the harvest that was to fall, these men are symbolic of all those who will be saved through the ministry. They were the first, and they were the guarantee of many more to follow. I can't imagine how hard the ministry of these men will be. It's going to be hard in those days, but it will be far harder than anything we can imagine. What a comfort it is to know that God is going to use them to reap a vast harvest of souls during the tribulation. Only in heaven will they know the full impact of their ministry. You know, this is also true of us. We will not know until we arrive home in glory just how the Lord has used our lives. I won't know how many people have listened to these sermons on the radio. I won't know for sure how many people have heard these sermons across the globe, the 136 countries I think it is that we stream into, or all 50 states that we stream into. I won't know the full impact of that because I don't know who has heard these sermons and who has not. But when I get to heaven, I will. I'll know what that looks like. Until he calls us home, we need to do the will of God from the heart. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6. You know, these men are sanctified. These men stand in the presence of God, complete and perfect. The Bible says that there is no guile found in them. The word guile means deceit. The word was used to speak of something that was a decoy, something that gave the appearance of being real but wasn't. These men claimed to be the servants of Almighty God, and their walk matched their words. They were not fakes. They were the real deal. The word fault means blemish. These men had no fault in their lives that could be pointed out by men. Now, even in the presence of God, they're declared faultless by him. Now, again, there's a word here for saints living in this day and age. Like the 144,000, our walk is to match our words. We should live out before men what we claim to be before God, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. We should live lives that are without blemish so that we might stand in his presence with confidence one day, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. You and I, yes, and I include myself in that very much so, are faulty at best. Every preacher that you listen to on the radio or in church or anywhere else are just men. 
They live under the same sin of Adam that you and I fall under, and we will all fail and fall short of the glory of God down here. There's coming a day when this evil flesh will drop away forever, and we will stand perfect and without fault in his presence. What a day that will be. Bow with me, please. Dear Lord, thank you for allowing me to preach your gospel today. Father, I pray that all those in the sound of my voice will make a decision for you, Lord. If they've never been saved, Almighty God, I ask you to touch their heart and bring them to you right now so that they don't have to suffer the fate that people will suffer in the last days of this world. And Father, if there be others out there who, like me, were saved but not living for you, not using their skills for you, and Father, I ask you to touch their heart express on them the need to do so. Father, I had no intention of ever going back to school, yet I found myself in seminary and graduated twice, two degrees, because I wanted to learn more about your will. Father, plant that wish in them. Plant that desire in them that they should come forth and serve you. God, I thank you for your son Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and the knowledge that someday that we can stand before you unblemished with the blood of Jesus covering us and you will not see our sin. Father, we thank you for Jesus for it's in his name that we pray, O oh God. Amen. If you made a decision today, I'd like very much to know about it. Uh, if you would, please send an email to ministry at christ-lives.org or visit our website, www.christ-lives.org and visit the contact page. You can leave us a message there. If you'd like our prayers, please note that in your contact. And I promise you I'll be glad to pray for you. I consider it an honor to pray for you. Thank you for your time and attention today. Thank you for listening. And a shout out to Zimbabwe. Hello, Anisu. I'm so glad that you're well. Amen.